Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hi, I'm Linda Regano, co-host of the WAM Podcast. It's an honor to be your host where I get to introduce listeners to some amazing women. With these podcasts, you're going to get to hear inspirational stories, both personal and professional challenges they've overcome, how their backgrounds help to shape who they are today, and how they're giving back to their communities and oftentimes the world. And speaking of the world, joining me today is an amazing trailblazer who is leading the way between the intersection of technology and education. Sabri Raja is co-founder and CEO of Nepris Inc. So let's dive right in and join me in a warm welcome for Sabri Raja and get to hear all about the company and what she's doing. Sabri, thank you for joining the show. Thank you, Linda, for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Oh, our pleasure, our pleasure. So tell our listeners more about who is Nepris. So first of all, the foundation for Nepris came because we wanted to bridge the gap between industry and education. So if I have to summarize what Nepris is today, it is a first-of-its-kind cloud-based platform helping connect industry professionals and working professionals virtually into classrooms to bring sort of the real-world relevance to learning while also exposing kids to role models that are pursuing different careers. So in short, we are bringing relevance and real-world exposure to all students. That's wonderful. What a great thing. And I do have to say I've been uh, a longtime admirer of yours and as well as a uh, participant in the platform. Thank what, you. What I'd love to do is if we could start off, let's kind of back up, and, and I'd love to hear your journey our listeners would love to hear your journey. And, I mean, frankly, Sabri, you're the epitome of the American dream. And perhaps you can tell us more about yourself. And particularly, what I thought was so amazing was how you went from growing up on a coconut farm in southern India to where you are today. Yeah. You know, I said that story so many times. And, yes, it was a unique experience growing up on a coconut farm in South India. So my parents still live there. So it's always wonderful to go back and visit. But as I was growing up there, you know, my world was very limited. There were no good schools around. So the only way I could get a good education was by going to a boarding school. This was very common in my family. Most of my family were into farming, lived in rural areas. So we were all sent to boarding school. I was sent to boarding school at the age of five. Wow. But yeah, my parents... You know, even though they were not college graduates, they emphasized education a lot. I remember my mom saying as a kid, this is something I often remember now. She always said that if you don't study, if you don't get a good education, you're going to end up on the farm. And mm. and it's somewhat funny now because I love the farm. I love to go back there. It's a beautiful place, right? I bet. But, yeah, but her point was that education was the path to a bigger, better world, and it was path to a career success. And even though she didn't have a college education, both my dad and mom emphasized that me and my sister got a really good education. It was sort of inbuilt in us from when we were little. My dad, I want to give you a, a very quick example of how committed they were to this cause because my dad, you know, realized, like, well, I think I was in second grade. And in India, it's a ranking system. Like in a class of 40 students, your academic ranking is very obvious. And the rank mm. sheet comes home. And 
he was puzzled why I was always ending up in rank two. He wanted to make sure I was ranked one, right? So <laughs> when he got down to it, it really came down to one subject, Hindi. Hindi wasn't our mother tongue. It was just taught as a language. There was no other tutors around. So he actually learned Hindi via mail. I mean, there was no online and stuff at that time. So he, I remember him subscribing to this mail order course. For a year, he learned Hindi so he can teach me, so I can end up getting rank one. That's how committed they were. That's incredible. Wow. And just the fact, too, that you went to a boarding school at such a young age. I mean, you really Mm -hmm. got a lesson in being independent. Yeah, I had no choice. And I think when I was eight, my sister came, followed me to boarding school, and I was not just responsible for myself. I was responsible for her as well. So I think uh, till today, she jokes that I need to pay for her therapy because I made her study. And (laughs) it's a very funny story now, but it was a lot of responsibility at a young age. I'm sorry, let me interrupt. Is your sister in India or is she here in the States? No, she's here. She lives 15 minutes away here from me. So, Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, So tell us, too. So, I mean, after boarding school, you went on to get your bachelor's in engineering in India. Mm-hmm. What made mm-hmm. you want to study engineering? So one thing in India at the time was if you're academically good, there was a, some sort of a societal pressure that if you're academically good, you have to become an engineer or a doctor, you know? So you see a lot of Indian engineering doctors. It was (laughs) kind of the path, right? But for me personally, you know, in growing up in a family of farmers and landowners, it was a very different world. But I had one uncle who had a very different uh, career. I mean, he, at a young age, had studied abroad and He ended up becoming an entrepreneur. He owned one of the largest printed circuit board manufacturing companies in India. And he lived in Bangalore in Silicon Valley of India. So whenever, for all our summer holidays, we used to visit my aunt and uncle. And that was the highlight of my year because it's a very different bustling city life. And I get to go to the factory with him. And it just kind of opened my eyes to different possibilities something different from the farm because all I knew was the boarding school on the farm at that time, right? right? It you just have... kind of opened up possibilities. Yeah, and obviously the entrepreneur gene is in your DNA, you know, yeah, with your uncle to doing some that. Extent, I mean, I would say most of my family are all entrepreneurs in their own regard. They may not be technology entrepreneurs, but I hardly knew anybody who worked for someone. They all owned their own farm or a cotton mill or, you know, something related to farming. So it was very much going to work for someone was just an interim step. You know, Mm -hmm. it was always entrepreneurship was in the back of my mind. One incident I remember that really was the first spark of entrepreneurship for me was on a drive to his factory in Bangalore. He pointed out to Biocon India and said, this is the first largest biotechnology company in India. And he said, you know, this was founded by a woman, Kiran Mazumdar Shah. And I was just awestruck. I mean, she came from a background where, and and she's in an industry which is completely a male-dominated industry. And being such a successful entrepreneur for a woman, it was just something that I never considered a possibility until that point, right? That's great. So she was a real role model for you. Yeah, to some extent, yeah. I would say I always read up on her 
it definitely fascinated me. Like if you think about it for someone who came from a farming background with very limited exposure to actually hear of stories like this was just uh, the first spark and an opening to consider something bigger than what you were already used to. And interestingly, I mean, it just, I mean, you were 18 at the time and you ended mm-hmm. up, you know, coming to the U.S. Actually, I'm sorry, you were 22 because you had graduated school, but you ended up going to Louisiana State University for your master's degree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Because, I mean, the enormity of that kind of a decision to move to mm-hmm. another country all on your own, mm-hmm. having never, I mm-hmm. think you had shared with me once you had never been on a plane, you know, <laughs> right. and even the fact that your parents trusted you you know, and realizing now as a parent how brave they were to, you know, Mm -hmm. to let you go. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Often people ask me, how did you decide to go to America to study? Mm -hmm. And many times these big decisions in life doesn't, at least in my case, I feel like it didn't take a lot of pondering and thinking and discussing. It was just happened, you know, so... Mm. For me, I, at that time, you know, there were good job possibilities in India, but it wasn't like today. Today, India is like booming economy with tons of technology jobs. It's a place to be. But at that time, there weren't many job possibilities, and I wasn't too keen on doing my master's there. And I always felt like I didn't have much exposure. I kind of wanted to see the world. There was a little bit of a drive to go out there and see what's out there. So just on a whim, because some friends were writing the GRE, I decided to prepare for it and take it. And it just was like a ball that kept rolling and it never stopped. (laughs) Uh (laughs) So so we ended up, there was not much thought process into it. It was like, okay, now that I've taken the GRE, I got a good score. Let me apply. And the application process itself was just so funny now that I think back with all the access and exposure we have today. At that time in a small town in India, I mean, nobody had computers at home. Internet connection was, you had to go to a computer center and book time and and sit down and do your searches. And it was really, really slow. So the way I made my decision was, from the library, we got this huge Peterson's Guide. I don't know if you remember the Peterson's Guide. Nobody knows I it today. I do. I do. And I think they're still out there. Yeah. yeah, they are. I should just get someone just for, you know, memory's sake, you know. So you should I, be their poster child. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we all did at the time, like, look at the Peterson's Guide. And often people ask me, how did you end up at Louisiana State University? And that decision was just like that, too. Like, no real thought went into it. I didn't know any single person in the U.S. None of my family members were here. I did not have any friends. So, so far away, it was just like, you know, to me, America was like, okay, it's tall buildings and so far away. That's all I knew about the country, right? So I flipped through the Peterson's Guide, and one thing I wanted was, you know, I wanted the university to not be so expensive. And then I liked LSU because I was like, well, look at the library, how many books they have. You know, that's the decision-making <laughs> process. <right? laughs> so I literally made my decision because it was, I mean, I knew I didn't want to go up north because it was cold and I wanted to stay in the south and wanted a state university where it wasn't expensive but good reputation. Lots of books in the library. <laughs> so that was my decision-making process. So ended up I in Louisiana. It. Yeah. And I had, you know, like you reminded me that 
I had never been on a plane. I had, you know, the farthest I had gone was to the neighboring state, to my uncle's place, and mm. never traveled, never been anywhere. So it was just, it didn't even strike me. This whole ball kept rolling and rolling. I got the admission. Everybody got excited. My parents, I think they never had a chance to really think about the enormity of this decision. And it all just happened. And I was on a plane, you know, yeah. so. Yeah. Well, yeah. probably a good I, I thing that the there plane. wasn't time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was time, but nobody was thinking about step three. Everybody was thinking, what's the next step, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. I got on that plane and when it really first hit me was I got on the plane and then I realized, gosh, there's no turning back, you know, and I can tell you, I pretty much from all through my trip, I think I came through Frankfurt and Atlanta. I got down in Frankfurt and I looked around and I didn't see anybody who looked like me. That's when it just really hit me, like the enormity of my decision. Oh, my God, what have I done? All the way mm. from Frankfurt to Atlanta, I was crying. <laughs> <All the way. Aww. laughs> I had decided that I'm going to go land in Baton Rouge, then book my tickets and go back home the very next day. <laughs> it's been 20 years. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. And you did well. You excelled at school and, and that led to your first job, right, with Texas Instruments, mm-hmm. which was instrumental, obviously, in helping pave the way to NetPress. Can you share more no, about absolutely. that and the mentors? Yeah, absolutely. And again, ending up at Texas Instruments in an education technology group was also just by chance because I applied for all the campus interviews. And the very first one I attended was with TI. And I had no idea about, you know, that there was even an industry like EdTech. It's still very nascent compared to other industries. That's education technology. And I was so excited when I actually got offered the job. So I ended up moving to Dallas to take the job. So with TI, I would say that was kind of where I grew up, you know. It was just so eye-opening, you know, here I am. I went through all these steps and process and and the ball kept rolling and I did well in school and studied hard and ended up getting my first job at a big company. Now I'm in a really big city all on my own and you have to learn to survive. And and so many people were in my same shoes, like friends who had come at the same time. So it wasn't just me trying to figure things out. But at TI, what was crucial was I remember there was always this internal battle, you know, I wanted to do so much. I was ambitious. I was motivated. But coming from a background that I came from with very limited exposure, it was just, I didn't have the confidence, you know. I remember I would be in meetings and I would be so afraid to speak up and I really Mm. want to say something, but I would be so afraid to speak up because I was like, what if I said something wrong? What if so-and-so thought this or that? And Mm. it was just not, for most people, it's, you know, second nature. I think, okay, if I have to say something, I'll say it. But it wasn't easy at all. I struggled with it. And one of my mentors at the time suggested that I sign up for Toastmasters. And that was the best advice. I signed up for Toastmasters and earned and armed my way through many, many Toastmasters <laughs> <meetings>. <laughs> and got dinged a lot, <laughs> you know. So um, I love it. And then years so later, like, you're doing a TED Talk. <laughs> yeah, years later, I'm doing a TED Talk. I never, honestly, I never in my lifetime, if anybody had said, 
that I would overcome my fear of public speaking and actually give a TED talk and actually enjoy it, I would have said never, never in this <laughs> lifetime. But I did it, you know. So, I mean, today, I, without public speaking, I mean, all my job today is getting up in front of people and convincing them of the ideas and and getting people on board and, you know, raising money and sharing my thoughts all day long. I could not do my job today if that foundation wasn't laid. But yeah. I also feel like I was always pushing a little bit to get out of my comfort zone. You know, I wanted to jump off the cliff and try things. I used to sign up for conferences to speak and be terrified. I wouldn't sleep for weeks, but oh. I still go and do it. <laughs> right, but you did it, and that's critical because yeah. not a lot of people can do yeah. that. So tell us the story about, I mean, you went from a you know huge company mm-hmm. to starting your own business. Can you talk about that right. and what the market opportunity and what you saw? Yeah, absolutely. It was, like I said, it was just a chance happening that I ended up in the education technology division at uh, Texas Instruments, had really good mentors along the way who sort of guided me. So I got involved at the time with a lot of outside activities, with working with uh, STEM education for girls and minorities. I was part of many of these discussions outside in the community. And like five years back, I actually left EI on a whim too. It was, again, one of those things where it's that entrepreneurial itch. I was like, I want to do something on my own. So everything was going great at TI. And one fine day I decided I actually Googled how to type a resignation letter um, (laughs) because that was my first job and I've been there forever. (laughs) So I ended up doing this on a whim without any plan. And then once I left my job at TI, it took me a year to sort of figure out I got involved during that year. I got involved a lot with those discussions around the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I was part of uh, these community discussions where industry leaders, school district leaders, higher education leaders, everybody got in a room all day long to discuss, you know, what is the role of industry in education? And uh, there's a lot of data and statistics around, you know, why kids drop out. And if you look at the data, it's sort of disturbing because the number one reason that kids drop out is because they don't see the relevance of school. That's 47% of kids who drop out do so because they don't understand how what they're learning in the classroom is useful in the real world, right? Well, that's Um, very disturbing. And there is also a, a big study that recently came out that's talking about the opportunity gap And they concluded that looking at all the patents being filed across the country, they looked at that and said, you know, it's not just academic achievement, it's the lack of exposure that's creating this opportunity gap. There are very few innovators coming out of the entire country. They're very concentrated in the West Coast and a little bit in the Northeast. The rest Mm. of the country, even where they're academically strong, they're not becoming innovators because of lack of exposure, right? Interesting, yeah. So being part of these discussions all over the country, it just kind of created a spark in me. And one day after, you know, a whole day of discussion about this, I drove to my friend's house, Binu, who is the co-founder and CTO of Nepris. And at 11 o'clock at night, we came up with the idea for Nepris. Our first thing was, well, I'm sure somebody is doing this, right? This can't be such a novel idea. But lots of people were doing this in connecting industry and education. We can't take credit for that. But nobody was doing it in a way 
where a technology platform was sort of connecting all these dots together in a very seamless but more importantly scalable way there are lots mm. of kids in rural areas that don't have access and our goal is through this platform to sort of bring equity of access to all students no matter where they are that's amazing so how did you i know that you specifically are you know targeting schools high schools vocational schools mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how many schools and professionals are on the platform today and how you did it? The numbers are huge. Well, I mean, the numbers are big, but still many more mountains to climb, right? So we do actually, initially, this was positioned as an educator platform, meaning through the educator, we connect to the students. Mm -hmm. So today, there's close to, I think, 68,000 K through 12 educators on the platform. Initially, a lot of them came through word of mouth. Within education, that's one thing. If somebody likes it, they tell someone else. Word of mouth is a very powerful way to build the community early on. And then uh, there are companies, I mean, there's over 5,000 companies represented on the platform. That does not mean we have a direct relationship with all of these companies. We do have a partnership with LinkedIn for Good. So behind the scenes, Netflix is integrated with LinkedIn. So we do have a steady stream of professionals that discover Netflix through LinkedIn as well. So that's been super powerful a partnership. It works great. It works seamlessly. Ties in with LinkedIn for Good's mission as well. Can you talk about the companies that are participating and maybe just give us an example of, you know, just even one, how it's benefiting them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Verizon is a great example. So Verizon and even AT&T and Verizon, these two are some of our early partners. They have set a goal of, for example, AT&T has a goal of 1 million hours of employee engagement. What that means is they are trying to accomplish two things. One is they want to contribute towards bridging this workforce pipeline gap. There are not enough kids coming out of this pipeline qualified to take the jobs that employers have. Ah, So most companies, either through corporate social responsibility or community engagement, in smaller companies, it can be a function of HR and marketing as well. You know, they want to reach out to the future workforce, sort of build their brand among the future workforce, introduce students to opportunities within the company. So Verizon and AT&T both have their own community. So before Netris, they still were doing this work, but there was a lot of manual process, right? So Verizon has something called Verizon Innovative Schools. There are around 100 school districts that are part of this community. And Verizon does a lot to support them with programs and resources and such. And now with Netris, they white label this platform with their branding to build their community so that their employees can connect with these 100 school districts and be effective. They can be in their office and connect with over 3,000 students in 45 minutes. So they want to scale that effort, right? As a company, Verizon has multiple offices all over the country and even across the world. So how do you provide the same opportunity for the employees as well, right? So not everybody Mm -hmm. can take half a day off and go into the school and do this. It's not scalable. We're not trying to replace the in-person connections, but we're trying to complement it and extend it so that instead of reaching 10 students at a time, you're reaching 3,000 students at a time. I mean, you're giving them a channel. You're giving them a major Mm -hmm. channel to Mm -hmm. do this in a way that they've been, they're obviously feeling the pain if they're doing it on their own. Mm -hmm. So I would think that any company would want to do this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then it's also important for them to track their involvement, right? So you don't want to just 
give money to a school district or just send one or two people to mentor and tutor. That's all good, but you want to know, okay, if uh, 100 of my employees connected with 50 classrooms across the country, where were these classrooms? How many students did we reach? And what was the impact of this? So we're able to track everything, and that's important for the companies as well. So, so let's talk about then today, I mean, in terms of your challenges with the platform and mm-hmm. outside of obviously attracting new investors, what are mm-hmm. the biggest challenges you're facing? No, it, today, you know, we're in a very good place as far as, you know, we have product market fit. We've been beating our revenue goals the past two years. And there's so much alignment now with, with the policy changes and funding changes with the districts, career readiness and career awareness is taking center stage. So those are all good. And as far as funding, we are right now in the middle of closing our Series A round. Mm-hmm. So that's exciting. So the biggest challenges now are to manage growth, you know, so we want to, you know, double the revenue and double the team in the next year. And being a small team, we've been very nimble. Now we need to be able to manage the culture and keep that passion alive. Everybody on our team today, they don't just consider this a job. They're super passionate about the problem they're solving. The biggest challenge is going to be to continue to grow and keep that passion and keep that culture alive. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's more yeah. of a mission. Yeah. And one more thing I wanted to add, Linda, sorry, is the diversity of role models. You know, that's the challenge for us. And I know, you know, as a woman, for me, seeing another woman entrepreneur was the spark. And we want to create these kind of sparks for in students. And it doesn't take much for a student to get that spark and be inspired. But we want to connect people who look like the students, you know. So we are always looking for partnerships with, you know, organizations like, you know, women in construction or women in engineering or Hispanic scientists or black engineers. So there's always, you know, we're looking for organizations that can help us bring that, the diverse role model to the platform as well. Wonderful. Yeah. And where do you see Nepris in, you know, in the coming years? Yeah, we do have a three to five year plan, but I don't know if everything is going to go for plan. So for <laughs> us, from the beginning, from the beginning, we've always wanted to stay under this bridging, this gap between industry and education. Today, we have a successful product. And one of the things that has happened in this process is because we record all the live interactions between industry and the classroom, today we have the largest database of authentic industry content in this space. There are over 9,000 videos of actual industry related conversations and these are all very authentic videos so so we have an opportunity to really sort of leverage this content and build student facing career exploration tools but one thing is you know because we're still a small team we focus very much on the u.s but in the future we want to be reaching out to students across the world so you want to be global we definitely yeah. be considered we want to go global we want to be the brand that is connecting industry and education and and in the process, really reaching students that need this the most. Last year, 62% of the students we reached were on free and reduced lunch, meaning from lower socioeconomic families. So we mm-hmm. want to continue to do that. That's fabulous. That really is. So one of the things I do like to ask in my shows is growing up, who were your biggest influencers that kind of set you on this path? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to, your to mom, be honest, right? I, yeah, I think both my parents were definitely the biggest influencers, right? And then 
seeing other role models like Kiran Mazumdar Shah, you know, seeing my uncle, you know, one thing is in my family, you know, my uncle was revered a lot. He was put on a pedestal, like everybody treated him with a different kind of respect. I wanted that, right? So that's so great. I, it was, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't know what exactly it was, but it was everybody looked up to him, and that was very powerful. It was, it was an influencer for me. That's great. And looking back, or even where you are now, what's mm-hmm. the best advice that you ever got? Oh, there's a lot, but if I had to pick one, it would be. I don't remember who told me this. It may have been one of my mentors at PI. They said, you know, you have a lot of great ideas and I love your drive and, you know, you're always like a go-getter, but first listen before you speak. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still still working on it, you know, so it's really hard when you have a hundred different ideas in your head and you can't wait to share them. So every day I have to consciously remind myself before getting into a meeting, don't say anything, listen, listen, listen. And it's still work in progress. I won't say I have it down, you know, but <laughs> I think that that's probably the best advice I've, I've received. I love it. And we're progress, not perfection. <laughs> sure. Well, Sabri, we are, and I hate to say this, but we're at the end of our show. And I just, I want to thank you so much for sharing your journey, your excellent insights. And just, you know, just on behalf of all of us, we wish you all the best. Thank you so much. And I really do appreciate the opportunity and it was fun talking to you. Thank you. Great. And for our listeners, if you want to learn more about Nepress, go to their website at www.nepress.com, N-E-P-R-I-S.com. And if you're in a company that, you know, wants to share their knowledge with these educators, please go to the site. You can easily sign up. It's not a lot of time. It's just a fabulous thing to do for yourself personally, professionally, and for your company. And we look forward to our next show. So stay tuned for more great stories with amazing women. Thanks. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.